a Roman Catholic Church priest was found murdered and robbed in a small town community in 1974. Little did they know then, but that would be the beginning of one man's three-month nationwide crime spree. You are listening to Cold Brew, a true crime podcast fueled by cold brew coffee. I'm your host, Caitlin Brewer, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find me on social media at Cold Brew Crime to see images related to this episode. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. It feels so good to be sitting here recording this episode. My husband and I are currently in the process of buying our first home, and we're doing it from 4,000 miles away. So it's been quite the adventure and has legitimately consumed all of our time over the past month. So I deeply apologize for the extreme delay in this episode. You know, life happens and I'm going to do my best to pre-record several episodes though over the next month so I can still give you guys some content throughout the move. In reality, I'm not sure if I'll be traveling across the ocean with my microphone. So yeah, but I just wanted to give you guys a quick life update and express that I am human and a one-woman show doing the best that I can. I do have a few other housekeeping things before we get into the coffee. I have had a pretty good response to the t-shirt idea, so I think I'm going to take maybe some pre-orders on those. I'm not exactly sure what direction I'm going to go with the t-shirts yet, so just stay tuned for that. I also just placed a sticker order today, so I'm super pumped. Stickers would probably be really cheap, probably no more than $4, literally shipped in an envelope. So also if you wanted a shirt, I would definitely throw in a free sticker. So keep that in mind. I'll be posting updates on how to order all of that and whatnot on Instagram. So make sure you're following me on Instagram at cold brew crime. I also wanted to say a quick hello to all the new listeners that have found me whether, you know, it was at random or from a Facebook group you're in or a friend recommendation, I am so glad that you're here and I really want to say thank you for listening. It really does mean a lot to me. Since there are so many new people, I've decided to do a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive a free cold brew true crime t-shirt and a sticker. So all you have to do to enter is leave me a written review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't have an iPhone or access to Apple Podcasts, you could leave a recommendation on Facebook or pretty much anywhere that would allow you to leave a written review, like a written feedback type thing. I'm not sure. A lot of people listen on different platforms. I personally just listen on Apple Podcasts, so I'm not sure what everything else looks like. But whatever you do, just screenshot it and, you know, send it to me on Facebook or Instagram. I'll be announcing the winner on episode 10. So this is, what episode is this? This is episode 6. So you have four whole episodes to hear me talk about the giveaway and remind you. So yeah. All right. Now it's on to the coffee. Okay. So I I have some really exciting coffee stuff to share today. One, I have a new method for my cold brew making and it has literally changed the game. I bought a French press off of Facebook Marketplace, which is my actual jam. That's been my go-to. It's so much easier. I just ground the coffee up, stir it all together, put it in the French press, let it sit for a day, 
And then the next day, just press it and pour it into my cup. It's so great. And this episode, Anchor Coffee Company legit hooked it up. Not only did they send me a bag of coffee, they also sent me some merch. And who doesn't love some free merch? So super pumped about all of that. Wearing my shirt right now as we record. They recommended when I, you know, said that I would love some cold brew, you know, whatever blend they use for their cold brew, they recommended their Seafair blend for cold brewing. And this blend combines flavors from three major coffee regions from around the world to create a unique espresso blend. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. It's bold. It's beautiful. It's just great. Anchor Coffee Co. is actually located in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. So if you remember from the first episode, it took place in Boone, North Carolina. So that's about a 40-minute drive west of Wilkesboro. You know, North Wilkesboro is like, they're all there together. North Wilkesboro is pretty much the halfway point between Boone and Winston-Salem. So right between the mountains and the Piedmont region you know, North Wilkesboro kind of sits like at the base of the mountains. I'll be talking more about North Wilkesboro once we get into the case. I'm not going to get too into detail there. Anchor Coffee Company started as just two guys literally experimenting and roasting some coffee beans like on the stove. And then, you know, they started serving pour overs at the local farmer's market. And if you're not familiar with pour overs or if you're like really not a coffee person, that is like a single serve like drip coffee like wow great explanation Caitlin I'm sure everybody's totally gonna get that okay so anyways so they started serving pour overs at the local farmer's market honestly I feel like they've totally changed the coffee culture in this small town and I'm really pumped to go check them out in person one day they've created an incredible brand personally as somebody who works really hard at branding I think they've done a phenomenal job they have really good blogs. They have really good like YouTube videos, promotional videos that kind of embody who they are and what they do. And I just, I'm really digging it. They've already ventured into a second location in Winston-Salem. So it looks really awesome. The location they've chosen, they have it, they have not really pictures of it, but some ideas of what it'll look like on their Instagram. So all of their coffee beans are available for purchase online. They have about eight different blends to choose from. What I thought was really cool is they do a Roaster's Choice coffee subscription, which is great for people like me who really can't decide and don't even want to decide. I don't even want to think about it. Just send me some coffee and I'll drink it. You can find all of that on their website at anchorcoffeecoat.com. And if you live in or nearby North Wilkesboro or just happen to be driving through like from Boone to Wilk from Winston-Salem, I 100% recommend that you stop and see these guys. They even have a drive-through. And as a mom, I can verify how truly essential a drive-through is in my coffee buying decision. Like if I have to physically get out of my car with my child and go in, I'm probably not going to stop at your coffee shop, to be honest, because that's just the way it goes. They have all the to-go options, half gallons of iced coffee to-go, boxed hot coffee for the whole office. Seriously, these guys have thought of everything. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Anchor Coffee Co. I'm so grateful for this powerful coffee today and for the many days to come because I definitely need it. So many thanks to Anchor Coffee for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I'll be back with the case right after this. 
Okay, so as I hinted earlier, this case takes place in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Personally, I'm not super familiar with this area. I've only driven through it a couple times. I did stay the night once for a wedding that I don't really remember. (laughs) Um, But I do have some cool facts to share about this quiet little community. A little over 4,000 people call North Wilkesboro home, and so do a few major retailers. Lowe's Home Improvement, you heard that right, Lowe's Home Improvement Store, the first one was opened and started in North Wilkesboro in 1946. Lowe's still has their corporate office actually in North Wilkesboro, which is very random to me, but you know. And also Lowe's Foods, which is a Southeast grocery store chain. It's kind of like a I feel pretty fancy when I go into Lowe's Foods, honestly. Okay, and at one point, they even, North Wilkesboro even had a functional NASCAR Speedway. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And after 50 years of racing, the final race took place at the North Wilkesboro Speedway on September 29th, 1996, and it was won by the one and only Jeff Gordon. If you're like me and you grew up in the South, there's a high chance that you probably watch NASCAR on Sunday afternoon at your papa's house after church. You had no idea what was going on. It was just always on the TV and you probably didn't really like it that much. So I know no one probably cares about NASCAR, but just know that North Wilkesboro was in NASCAR from the get-go. And so we're in North Wilkesboro. It's 1974 and Father Francis Donahue has made himself right at home at St. John's Catholic Church, which at this time in 1974 was located in the former home of the town's co-founder, whose name I didn't write down, so I apologize for anybody that might be offended by that. This house is quite a sight to see. I'll post a picture of it on Instagram, but it was built in 1908, It's over 20,000 square feet. Yes, I said that correctly. 20,000 square feet. It's two and a half stories. It was all white. It had a huge porch and, you know, like a lot of property around it that was well maintained. And it sat kind of on top of a hill. And to me, it looked like it overlooked part of the town. Just felt like it was a very prestigious home back in the day. It still sits on the corner of D and 8th Street. Even though St. John's grew and found a new location, you can still see the house. It's still there today. I think it's occupied, like someone lives in it. And on Google Maps, you can actually almost go all the way around it. So, And the most ironic thing to me that I didn't even find out until I literally started researching this case is that this house that I'm talking about is not even half a mile from Anchor Coffee Company. Like, you could walk there. Father Francis Donahue came to the church around January of 1972. He was 63 years old at the time. He was just going to be the replacement for the previous priest who was going to the Catholic University, but then that priest got reassigned to a church in Charlotte after he graduated. So Donahue became the permanent priest at St. John's. He was born in Boston in 1910. And by 19, he already knew he wanted to be a priest, like he was in it. He was ordained by 1939, 
and was able to go back close to home to serve at the Shrine of St. Joseph in Sterling, New Jersey. So he took a few temporary positions over the years, some in Virginia, South Carolina, and Mississippi, all before getting to North Wilkesboro. One of the deacons at St. John's, Harold Markle, told Marty McKee, which is a writer for the Wilkes Journal, wrote all of the articles that I research for this episode. So shout out to Marty. Harold Markle told him that he remembered Donahue as a guy everybody loved. He was always happy, very social, like, you know, kind of the life of the party a little bit, as much as I guess the priest could be. He enjoyed parties, never turned down a drink, and Markle blamed that on Donahue's Irish roots. Markle also mentioned that Donahue was a huge sports dude. Like, you know, the church had like a softball team. They'd have softball games. And Donahue literally would still bat, but he would make the kids run bases for him. So he was a pretty good time. The last time Markle saw Donahue alive was when he told him to drive safe before leaving for a funeral that he was going to in Washington, D.C. a few days later. So it's June 28th, 1974. It's the early afternoon at St. John's. And the church secretary, Juanita O'Donohoe, I think I'm saying that right, opens the door to greet a tall, blonde-haired man. He's dressed in a suit and carrying a briefcase, you know, looks really well put together. He requested to speak to the church's priest in regards to planning a relative's funeral. So the secretary shows him inside, you know, and like gets him situated, goes and gets the priest. And this guy and the priest proceed to discuss the arrangements. She had taken them into the first floor's, like, kitchen. So the secretary overheard the stranger ask for financial help to pay for the funeral, but Father Donahue just continued taking notes, didn't really, like, make it really a big deal at that time. So the secretary then walks away, you know, to give them some privacy. And it wasn't until later that evening that Juanita actually, like, thought about it and was like, something's really kind of strange. Father Donahue had a dinner reservation with another priest that evening at 7, but she hadn't even heard like heard him, hadn't heard a sound from him, hadn't seen him since she left him and that other man in the kitchen earlier that day. So that's several hours have gone by, and I'm sure they probably like chit-chatted all the time, and he was walking around. Anyway, so a few minutes after 7, she decides to go make some coffee and kind of like casually go upstairs just to check on him. To her surprise, she finds Father Donahue on his bed, dead. He was tied up, bound and gagged, but fully dressed. His arms and legs were all individually tied to a bedpost with some type of wire and cord that looked to be like it was from the blinds in the room. He had managed to untie one arm and that arm laid over his chest with his like with a clenched fist. The room looked basically untouched, like it really did not look like something awful had occurred here. The only things that were out of place were there were pieces of cord laying on the, like, cord that had been cut laying on the carpet from the blinds, and Donahue's wallet was laying beside him, like, kind of below his torso, and it had been emptied of any cash that was in it and kind of, like, sorted through. It was believed that he probably had about $200 in there and it was gone. Also, apparently, there was a teenage boy in the room beside Donahue's painting the walls that afternoon. Father Donahue had been arranging a lot of renovations to the second floor because it was in pretty bad shape. So this guy had been painting and stuff. 
He said that he heard no sounds of distress or something that would lead him to believe someone was in danger. At one point, he said he looked out the window to see Father Donahue's 1972 blue Chevrolet Impala driving off, and he just assumed it was the priest. So the cause of death was a bit questionable at first, and the initial report stated that Father Donahue was shot in the head. Literally, this assumption was related to a large brown birthmark on his right temple. Apparently, it turned black after his death, and somehow that led the investigation to believe it was a bullet hole. The next thought, you know, I guess this all probably happened at the crime scene. Like, they were like, oh, he has a bullet hole, and they didn't really research it that much. Anyway, so the next thought was that he was strangled because there was a knotted towel found around his neck, but the S, the State Bureau of Investigation, joined the case, and the body was sent off to Chapel Hill for an autopsy, thankfully. The autopsy revealed that Donahue actually died of a heart attack. This was probably brought on by the shock of it all and the stress of trying to untie himself. Okay, so a local priest has been murdered and robbed pretty much right under everybody's noses in this small town, and people, you know, like, start talking about this certain incident that seemed a little out of the ordinary that happened the day before. And I mean, I'm from a small town. There's really not that much exciting things that happen. So when something does happen that is just a little different, the whole town is talking about it. So I'm sure that this priest murder and like all, like I'm sure the whole town had conspiracies at this point. So anyways, the day before, a 1974 Ford LTD which is really just a regular-looking older model car. Like, you Google it, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, an old car. This car with Kentucky license plates rear-ends another vehicle on the main business street in North Wilkesboro. Apparently, the man driving this Ford got out of his car, walked to the other driver, and asked if she was okay, and then just, like, casually strolls into the Winn-Dixie across the street where they all assumed he was going to call the cops. They never saw him again. He didn't return to the scene. And a store associate said that she saw him going out of the rear store exit. So, he dipped. Witnesses said this man was well-dressed in a coat and tie and carrying a briefcase. Okay, so once the police finally arrive, they run the tags, and they find out that the car was recently reported stolen. There was also some clothes left behind in the car, and they were able to trace those back to a man named William Roland Roberts. I could not find how they traced these clothes back to him. Literally have no idea. So they found out they were his. So they quickly learned that this man, William Roberts was 37 years old and had recently been released from jail on parole and was last known to live in Kansas City. Another witness came forward and told the police that she saw a man matching Robert's description on June 28th, which was the day Father Donahue died, near St. John's Church, which all of that, like the church was literally barely over a mile from where Robert's wrecked this Ford. So, an all-points bulletin, which is a radio message sent to every officer and gives them, you know, like, details of a suspected criminal or stolen vehicle or whatever, was issued for Roberts as he was the main suspect in Donahue's death. 
Roberts was considered armed and dangerous, and multiple arrest warrants had been issued. He eventually was charged for murder about two months later for Father Donahue's death. At this point, the FBI took over the investigation since this dude was clearly a fugitive with a plethora of felony charges. All the cases I've shared so far have actually been cold cases. They've never been solved, and this one is finally different. In this case... The trail of crimes committed by William Roberts goes nationwide, and it gets crazy. Okay, so Roberts was tracked to Mississippi by stolen credit cards he was trying to use. He was then spotted in Rapid City, South Dakota on July 16th, where he attempted to get a motel room, but the card was denied or declined or whatever, and the motel clerk, you know, told him that this card had been reported stolen, And the clerk said that Robert's reply was like, that's impossible. I'll just go out to the car and get money for my wife. And then obviously Robert never returned. There's actually a map that lays out Robert's possible path, like through all of this. And it's just crazy to see how much ground this guy actually covered before getting caught. So his next known whereabouts were on July 22nd in Billings, Montana. Patricia Sue Ramey, a secretary at St. Luke Episcopal Church, was alone when Roberts came in and asked to see the clergyman. Uh, He then robbed her at gunpoint, raped her, and forced her into the Impala that he stole from Father Donahue and drove off. Patricia actually testified during his trial that after kidnapping her, he threatened to kill her and her two children if she told anyone. So she said, you know, she never attempted to escape him because... She was petrified that he was actually going to kill her kids. He kept Patricia with him as he traveled to Idaho Falls, and there he traded the Impala in for another vehicle at a used car lot. He had put Kentucky license plates on the Impala, so I guess that, you know, it didn't immediately, like, stick out to anybody as a stolen car. Anyways, it took about two months for authorities to find it and confirm that it was Donahue's car. Robert's next deathly stop would be on August 5th. Robert spotted a couple fishing at a fishing pond in Rising Sun, Indiana. Patricia said that Robert spotted them and said, I'm going to go see those people and get some money. He approached them alone and chatted casually about baseball, you know, while they're all fishing and other just day-to-day things, trying to act all normal until they were all the last ones fishing. He then forced them to the couple's car, Henry and Norma Reed, were their names. So he forced them to their car where he pulled a gun on them, took the money from Mrs. Reed's purse, and then, you know, basically forced them to drive him to their home across the state line in Cincinnati, Ohio. Once they got to the Reed's home, Robert tied the couple up in the basement. Henry Reed, who was 71 and retired, was tied up to the toilet where Norma, only 42, had been tied up to the chair outside the basement bathroom. Henry told Roberts the only money they had was about 50 bucks upstairs on his dresser. Once Roberts started looking, he happened to find $300 hidden kind of nearby, and that immediately triggered Robert that Henry had lied, and he did not like that. So Norma testified that she heard Roberts come down um, and just, like, go and strangle her husband, like, tighten the rope around her husband's neck. And she heard him take his last breath. Roberts then attempted to strangle her and ended up just knocking her unconscious with the butt of a handgun. 
He found his way to another Catholic church in Martinsburg, West Virginia, on August 12th, and was asking for help with a funeral. Again, Robert held Nicoletta Tambasia, the church housekeeper, at gunpoint. He then handed Patricia a second gun, and she had to force Father John Joseph O'Connell to write a check for $1,000. Roberts then left with Nicoletta as his hostage, you know, and like drove to a nearby bank to cash it. He then took both Nicoletta and Father O'Connell in his car to like a deserted spot 15 miles outside of town. He locked them in the trunk of a car in the 90 degree heat. Thankfully, they managed like to bust out one of the taillights and were able to survive for three days in the trunk of this car until they were rescued by a nearby swimmer who spotted the car. At this point, David Feltz of the North Wilkesboro Police Department and Steve Cabe of the SBI were able to go to Martinsburg to interview Father O'Connell. He was able to positively identify Roberts as the person who robbed and kidnapped him. His next stop was Meridian, Connecticut on August 22nd, where he assaulted another Catholic priest, tied him to a bed, and robbed him of $500 cash. And he was also spotted some days before in Pennsylvania and New York. So by August 27th, two months after the crimes, a warrant was officially issued charging Roberts with the murder of Father Donahue. The murder charge was legally justified under the presumption that Donahue's death was caused by a heart attack only brought on by the assault from Roberts, and that his acts constituted murder. But Robert was still on the loose, and about a week later, he entered another Catholic church in Manchester, Massachusetts, and held a gun to the housekeeper's head. Honestly, I really don't know what this dude has against the Catholic church, but he really had it out for them. His attempts in Manchester failed as the housekeeper escaped by running straight through the screen door in the cellar. Once Robert tried to tie her up and like hold her hostage, she was like, nope, I'm out. So Roberts then had to flee the scene through the same door and basically couldn't catch her. So literally this guy is still going three months later and by September 3rd, he was in Adrian, Michigan. There he assaulted, robbed, and bound another priest and church secretary. He was able to actually steal $1,800 from this church, um, tied both of them up to the bed, and escaped just minutes before the police got there. Like, honestly, at this point, it's just like, will he ever be caught? And how (laughs) are all the Catholic churches in the nation not, like, on severe lockdown? So now he heads down south to Alabama. He stopped at a motel in Hamilton, um, and naturally, you know, he robbed the clerk at gunpoint there and tied her to a bed. He then gagged and bound Patricia, who somehow was still along on this wild ride. Like, bless her. He's, like, kidnapped her two months prior, and I'm sure, like, her family was just distressed. So Patricia was found a few days later, thankfully in good condition, and she had no criminal charges filed against her. Like, um, yeah, she was literally held against her will by a psycho. The manhunt continued for Roberts. He had made his way west to Fort Smith, Arkansas by October 1st. There, he forced a Catholic priest to withdraw $200 from his bank and then took him to a motel to tie him up to the bed but left him alive, you know, in true Roberts fashion. Somehow, the FBI believed he was then headed to Oklahoma next, 
and alerted the Catholic clergy in Oklahoma City to be on high alert for the suspect. Literally, an FBI agent did an interview with the Ada Evening News in Oklahoma and said that Roberts was going to rob a bank, which I personally think is just dumb. Like, if Roberts was watching or heard it on the radio, like, he's definitely changing his plan now, and how do you even know that was his plan? So... Anyways, now he's basically going even further away from the path that they thought he was taking. And he ends up in Utah. Okay. This time he decided to hit up the Baptist and abducted a Baptist minister or a preacher, as I like to say, Baptist preacher, and a funeral director in Moab, Utah. Um, he forced the funeral director to withdraw all of his savings from the bank and then continued his routine and took them to a motel and tied them up. All right, so it's literally been almost a full three months at this point. Robert has literally traveled over 10,000 miles and crisscrossed over most of the country twice. And finally, on October 12th, 1974, in Portland, Oregon, William Roberts starts having chest pains and he thought he was having a heart attack. So, being the dummy that he is, he checked himself into the hospital in Portland under his real name. And, I mean, maybe he was just ready to get caught at this point, you know? He suddenly felt like he was actually dying and had a flash of reality. I don't know. But the nurses confirmed his identity and called the police, thankfully. He was then arrested, you know, like, as he lay on the hospital bed. And once the police chief in North Wilkesboro, like, gets word of this, he's like... Okay, I'm mailing this murder warrant to the FBI, like, now. So, Roberts was then wanted for murder in both North Carolina and Ohio, because there's only been people that have died in North Carolina and Ohio from his crimes. So, you know, they basically had to decide which one he was going to be tried for or which state it would be better. During his arraignment on October 15th in Portland, U.S. Magistrate George Uba ordered Roberts to be moved to Cincinnati to stand trial for kidnapping and felonious assault of the Reeds and the murder of Henry Reed. Yeah, it basically came down to his chances being greater in Ohio because, you know, Reed was actually strangled, whereas Father Donahue technically died of a heart attack. So the chances of him being convicted in Ohio were a little, you know, larger than in North Carolina. On October 24th, he was moved to Ohio and was arraigned on the morning of November 26th. The judge delayed the trial date until Roberts could be examined by three state-appointed psychiatrists who would determine if he was sane, you know, and able to stand trial. After their examination, they determined he was, in fact, sane and fit to stand trial. The trial date was then set for April 14, 1975, and if found guilty, he could be sent to the electric chair under Ohio law. During the trial, Roberts denied killing Henry Reed, saying that before leaving the Reed's house, he asked both the husband and wife to nod their heads if they were all right, and both of them did. He was alive when I left, he testified. He also said that when he left Father Donahue bound to his bed inside St. John's, the priest was very much alive. These were just a few of his statements during his very interesting and lively trial. Like, I don't think he responded well to almost all the things that they said about him. The Cincinnati jury deliberated for less than three hours on April 22, 1975, before bringing their verdict back to Judge Robert V. Wood. 
The jury found Roberts guilty of all six charges, including aggravated murder, three counts of kidnapping, felonious assault, and aggravated robbery. Judge Wood sentenced Roberts to die in the electric chair on November 7, 1975. Three years after Roberts was sentenced to death, the U.S. Supreme Court turned down the death penalty in Ohio for a second time. Roberts and 96 others on death row had their sentences changed to life in prison. William Rowland Roberts never stood trial for the murder of Father Francis Donahue in North Wilkesboro, but for that crime and all others that he committed, he spent the rest of his life behind bars seeking forgiveness for his sins. William Rowland Roberts died 28 years after he was sentenced to die in the electric chair on July 3, 2003, at the age of 66. Cold Brew is recorded, edited, and produced by me. To be sure you don't miss future episodes, please subscribe to Cold Brew True Crime Podcast wherever you listen. And don't forget to enter the giveaway. All you need to do is leave me a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't have an iPhone or Apple Podcasts, you can leave a recommendation on Facebook or anywhere that allows you to leave some type of feedback. I'll be announcing the winner on episode 10. You can send any questions or comments about this episode to me on social media at Cold Brew Crime. See you next time.